Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just as every vote must be counted, every voice should be heard. And America's diversity celebrated. Later, photographer Alan Batt will tell us about his new book, Tokes in Black a celebration of black chefs. First, giving voice to a cause. I first spoke with Tina Clark on City Lights in 2018 after the publication of her memoir, Southern Discomfort. Before she was an author, Tina Clark was a storyteller through music. Amidst our global reckoning with racial injustice this summer, I sat down with the Grammy Award-winning composer and producer to discuss some of the favorite protest and social justice songs she's written throughout her career. It's been interesting because I cannot tell you how many people that friends, colleagues, etc., acquaintances that have reached out to me and have said, I'm surprised you haven't written a new song about this. Are you writing a new song about this? Are you writing a protest song? And I think for me, I have been at such a loss of, I don't know if it's a loss of words, or if it's too many words, I know it will come. And I started looking back on all the songs that I have written around various social injustices and social impact. And I just feel that I have a lot to say. And when I feel that way as a writer, I, and I, you've probably, you've talked to so many other writers, you know, it's, it's like you feel it inside of you brewing and it's it's going to come out but when and how I'm waiting to see and I don't mean to sound so esoteric about that but it truly is a gift with as far as my emotions are concerned I remember when you and I were talking about the book and when I started playing the drums at 10 I would beat out my emotions and I think 
that's how I became the drummer that I became was because it came out through the music. And then after becoming a songwriter, I think that a lot of my success has been because it, it just builds up until it comes out. I have been thinking about it tremendously. And I looked back on a song that I had written about racism in the late, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, and a song that I recorded on Gladys Knight. And Gladys and I both were told by the label that it was too in your face. And so it, and believe me, it's not. But at that time, that just shows you the difference in the times. But it did not make it on the album because they said it was too controversial. But it did end up being in just a small film that, you know, was around for a minute. But since then, you know, several years later, Mary Wilson from the Supremes cut it and it's had various lives. But I have been, as you know, from my book, this is something that has pained me for decades and decades and decades. And I feel like the best thing I can do is to use my art to try to make an impact. And that you have. What was the title of that song that you worked on with Gladys Knight that you were told was too much in your face? It's called Ain't Gonna Walk the Line. Walk the Line. No reference to Johnny Cash. No reference to Johnny Cash. Uh, His was Walk the Line. Mine was Ain't Gonna Walk the Line. Okay. Talk about the One Billion Rising campaign and your song, Break the Chain. Yeah, as far as writing is concerned, that's probably one of the most impactful and highlight uh, the highlights of my writing career, of what that song has done and the impact that it has made. When I got the call from Eve Ensler that she wanted to meet in Los Angeles, and Eve, as I know a lot of your audience will know, is the founder of, you know, One Billion Rising. And also Eve wrote the Vagina Monologues and et cetera, et cetera, many, many accolades. And her work has always been around stopping violence against women on a global level. And so she had reached out to me through Pat Mitchell. And Pat, who is a very, very close friend of mine, and said, could we meet in Los Angeles? There's a group that's going to get together and talk about this movement. So I did, I was living in LA at the time. And she asked me to write the song for the movement and that she wanted this movement to happen on February the 14th around the world every year 
and that far her goal was for a billion women to walk out of wherever they were, whatever they were doing in every country. And for these few minutes, they would sing this song and stand up to stop abuse against women. tall order and it's now after these years I don't know how many years it's been now I would have to look back on gosh eight nine ten something like that it's like a tsunami it's been massive um, the song has been massive I the movement has been massive and it's just overwhelming to me to even go online and look at the hundreds of thousands of videos that have been uploaded of women and men from every country in all these different languages. And, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming. And I'm very humbled by it that I was asked to take a part in this. I read that this song, Break the Chain, was published in 2012. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, the rise in intimate partner violence has doubled. As far as we know, it could be even greater. More people are calling domestic violence hotlines to request help. The UK alone has reported femicide rates higher than they have been in the past 11 years. Wow. So... Sadly, this song rings true eight years later. What was at the heart of what you were trying to convey in Break the Chain? There were so many things I was trying to convey. It is how precious and beautiful and special you are as a woman and what God has created and that you are not a second-class citizen. You are not owned by anyone. That no matter how bad things may be, it is you can break that chain. You can break that chain of violence. And that there can be a world that is, one of the lyrics are, safe and free from all oppression. No more rape or incest or abuse. Women are not a possession. There was another line in there too that was one of my favorite lines and it's, this is my body. 
my body's holy. No more excuses, no more abuses. We are mothers, we are teachers. We are beautiful, beautiful creatures. Because I find that so many times women in that are in oppressed situations or abusive situations start believing the abuser. They start believing that they're not worthy. They're start, they believe that so many times that the reason they're being abused is because they deserve it. It's this vicious, vicious cycle. And I think it is about breaking that. And you're absolutely right, Lois. I have read so many things on also about how the rise in abuse during COVID, because if you think about it, they're stuck with that abuser. You know, they may be not going to, both people may not be going to work, or maybe there's not as much money as there was to take care of things. Everything is taken out on that woman. I wanted women to have hope. I wanted people to be able to, women to be able to go out and dance and sing. I also got, at the time I was asked to do this, I got Debbie Allen, who is my cohort, to create the dance for this. So Debbie created the dance, and it is just amazing to watch it. And I feel like women feel right now, probably, and I'm sure there's men too that are abused, but as we all know, the majority is women that are stuck and are stuck in this abuse. There's always a way to get out, always. Grammy Award-winning music producer and composer Tina Clark. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Tina, your song, My, My, Mississippi, discusses the state's House Bill 1523, and that bill passed in 2016. It gave broad permission to deny services to LGBTQ people on the basis of religious freedom. In the lyrics of the song, you write, you keep hating, we keep waiting, don't you want to heal your past? I was especially moved by your lyrics to this song. How was writing this piece the best way for you to express your feelings about the state's bill? Well, when I first got a call about it, because I I stay somewhat involved in Mississippi politics, and when I first got the call that this bill was on the table, I tried to reach out to the governor, who I knew. No response, no matter what I tried, no response. And I tried to reach out to some other people, and I knew the people that were fighting on the ground there to stop this. And finally, I just got so frustrated. I just thought, okay, you're going to use your pen to sign something like that. I'm going to use my pen to show the world or show the country. I'm going to use my pen to show how it can be different. And I was on a plane going flying from Atlanta back to L.A., and as this happens a lot of times for me, I was so troubled and, and just disgusted by this whole thing of just repeat abuse in this state that this song just poured out because obviously that's where I'm from originally. And this is not a hateful song. This is a song about begging you 
to look at the past and not repeat the same mistakes and to be known for something better than that and that we can be better. And I know that's kind of a cliche now, but that's the way I felt. So when these lyrics poured out, spilled out onto the page, I just felt, this may sound a little crazy, but I felt that, well, Maya Angelou was a mentor to me and I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with her. And I felt that this song, once it poured out, that it needed to be acapella. It did not need any other instruments. And I could not figure out why I felt that way. Well, I sent an, I sent an email. This is really a, a, a wonderful story. I sent an email to a couple of my session singers, you know, recording session singers in Los Angeles. And I said, hey, can you meet me over at my studio in L.A.? I need to cut this. And I told them what it was about. And I said, so if I can just get five or six of y'all and I can just overdub all the parts and we can just layer them and then it'll sound like a big choir. That's what I want to cut. Lois, that was on the plane that morning. I asked them if we could meet that night at my studios. When I got to the studio, 64 top session singers in LA showed up. The email had gone viral to all of my friends and singers and incredible, I mean, everybody from Patty Austin to you name it. We recorded this song. It, it, it still chokes me up today to know the response there. Open up and set free. Mississippi, what you're thinking, what you're drinking, don't you know your ship is sinking fast? Oh, my, my, Mississippi, you keep hating, we keep waiting, don't you want to hear your past? Well, the mighty Mississippi keeps Afraid to take God's children's hand. I don't think that's what God But when it was done, I realized that that song was somewhat channeled <laughs> to me, I felt like, by the time that I had spent with Maya because we were in the back of her Lincoln, her silver Lincoln, on the way to the studio one day in North Carolina. And she starts, you know, as she would sing when she would give speeches, she started singing this call and response that I had never heard. And it was amazing. And I said, what is that from? And she said, my grandmother used to sing that to us all the time. That was one of the songs they sang in the fields. And I said, oh, my God, we've got to record that. She said, oh, you don't want me to record. I said, yes. When we go into the studio to cut this other thing we're doing, we have to record that. I just want you to sing it a cappella, which she did. 
I took that, that particular song back to my studios in LA when I left there. And I built a whole choir around that song, but it was a cappella because it was coming from the fields. It was coming from the dirt, from the earth, from the soil of those souls of the people at that time. And I think this song, that's what it feels like. So that's where that song came from. Tina, it is amazing in its power and learning about Maya Angelou's relationship with you and that she was a mentor makes all the more sense given the poetry of the lyrics and why you wanted it to be a cappella because it really I was trained as a musician I never want to say it doesn't need music. No, it is music, but the purity of voices alone just drives home the message that much more powerfully here. What you're thinking, what you're drinking, don't you want to heal your past? And you keep hating, we keep waiting. The refrains there, I love the metaphor, you invoke the mighty Mississippi River itself when you say it keeps rolling, rolling all through the land, but you keep swimming backwards, afraid to take your brother's hand. The U.S. State Department commissioned you to present a song for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Please tell us about I Believed. Well, it was one of those other moments when I get this phone call and, you know, I get a call from Ann Stock, who was at the State Department with Hillary at that time, and also Milan Revere. And they wanted to surprise the Secretary of State far because she was, you know, ending that chapter in her life. And for International Women's Day with the Women of Courage Awards that they would do every year at the State Department, they wanted a song written that could somehow encapsulate the work that Secretary Clinton had done all of her life and through all the years. And that was another tall order. I I flew to D.C. I met with both of them. And they were so excited that she was going to be surprised by this. So when the International Women of Courage Awards happened at the State Department and women from all over the world, and believe me, I did not feel worthy even being in that auditorium because these were women that had lost loved ones who had lost limbs themselves, had done just these were extraordinary feats and encourage that these women had had to make a change and make a difference and fight back and stand up for other women and other family members in other countries, et cetera, et cetera. With that said, I had gotten Judith Hill, who I don't know if you ever saw 20 Feet from Stardom, the documentary, is a a fairly well-known artist now, but she was with Michael Jackson. When he passed, she was with Prince at the time that we lost Prince. She was the mega, mega star go-to as far as background singer and duet singer, et cetera. 
and she's a great artist in her own right, not just a back, I'm not saying just a background singer, but she did more than backgrounds. I reached out to her and said, look, I've written this song, Secretary Clinton, I would love for you to sing it. I recorded it on her, I sent it to them, they loved it. We go for this event at the State Department and it's um, Secretary Clinton and Michelle Obama sitting next to each other on the stage and these 10 women who were being awarded this award. And then at a certain point during the program, they said, we have a special surprise for you now, Secretary Clinton. This song was written for you and for your work and everything that you have done for all the women in the world. And Judith went up and sang the song. I didn't know I had a choice I never knew anyone was listening I didn't know I had a voice One day I reached down deep inside oh, And found the courage I had prayed for all my unbelievable. So that was where I believe came from. Tina, does this song have added meaning for you now with 2020 as the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment of women gaining the right to vote? Of course, and it's amazing. And at the same time, it seems like I can't believe it's only been that, that short of a time since women were recognized the right to vote. I feel like now with where we are, it's a nightmare that's trying to be repeated through certain forces. And I think now is, is I don't think any young woman or woman or man anywhere can take for granted for one second where we are right now and how important that right that you have for all the people and not just the women who died and were abused and everything else trying to get this passed for years and decades and their rights not being acknowledged, but the men, men and women who fought for us to be able to vote, for somebody to take for granted that you, to not, to make the choice that you're not going to vote to me is pretty close to unforgivable, and especially right now. We'll return with more from my conversation with Tina Clark after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with music producer and composer Tina Clark. We Belong is a song you wrote last year for the upcoming Clarkston documentary. Now, for anyone unfamiliar with the city of Clarkston, it's part of the metro Atlanta area and noted for its vast diversity as it's become a home for many refugees and asylum seekers coming to the U.S. Sixty languages are spoken in Clarkston alone. Would you take us through We Belong as it relates to the documentary? Yes, I mean, when I got a call from Aaron Bernhardt, who I know that you know, who is an amazing filmmaker and an amazing young woman, to write the theme song for this, I really didn't know anything about Clarkston. And so I was just blown away when I was able to dive into this and saw some trailers from, you know, which they already had, and to learn that it was America's most diverse square mile. I was like, really? Really? And, you know, the film follows a Muslim refugee and a former Klansman on their journey to find healing in this country. And it is a beautiful, riveting documentary. Hopefully it'll be coming out. Um, I, I know there hasn't been a date set yet, but maybe in within the year, I don't know because of COVID how far it's pushed back. But anyway, it's incredible and it, it, it's a beautiful doc. The song was about just exactly what the title is, that we belong. No matter what country you're from, a refugee from whatever country or whoever you are, that here in this country, what we are built on is taking in our brothers and sisters and giving them a new life and a new start. You know, Lois, sometimes I just will look up at the stars at night and I see the same stars and the moon that you do, or that my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or in Africa or Japan, wherever, we all want the same things. We all want to be loved. We all want to take care of our families. We all want our children to do well. We want to have a good life. And just because you're a refugee doesn't mean that you don't want those exact same things. And for me, the song was about not being afraid of people that are different from you, not having that fear to walk hand in hand I mean, there's a part in the song that I repeat what we are built on, you know, from a refugee standpoint. Go to America, we are told. Bring us your tired, your poor and old. We're working all day and working all night. 
we are here to give, not take away. And it's about opening your hearts and opening your minds and opening your doors that I think that we will all find that we are sisters, we are brothers, we are family. We're all families just like each other. For me, it was just about getting rid of this fear, our exclusivity, our feeling like you are the chosen one or that you are so elite that everything is supposed to be a certain way in a tiny little box and you're gonna do whatever you can to keep others out. I don't want to live in that world. That's not the world to me that God created. Invite someone over to dinner that you never have had in your house before and see if you can walk away from that meal feeling like you are better than those people. I just, I don't know how you can walk away not feeling different. Now we turn to the queen, Aretha Franklin, (laughs) the queen of soul herself saying, stand up for yourself. The song has been an anthem for health care reform. Tina, how were you able to get Aretha Franklin involved with this song you wrote? Well, Aretha and I worked together for quite a while, and Norman Lear had reached out to me because Norman is also a mentor of mine, and we have been very close friends for many years and he was doing the um, the tour of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. Pearl Clegg did a project with teenagers at the Alliance Theater surrounding that. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, he had reached out to me first and talked to me about the election um, at that time and about getting people to use their voice and to stand, you know, to declare themselves. It was a whole project that he was working on. And I first started thinking about it then. I talked to, at the time Hillary was running, and this was the first time, uh, so that would be 2008. And I thought, you know, I want to write this for Hillary. And I want to write this for her to use as a theme song for the campaign and, you know, for people to get out and vote, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to Aretha and talked to Aretha about it, and she was very much into it. Then AARP said, you know, we want you to write a song <laughs> to engage people in voting and to get people out to vote. And that can somewhat be our theme song. They commissioned me to do it. And it was like these, all three of these worlds kind of came together. It was not that 
by any means that they were being partisan, that they were looking at this as a Hillary song. It was, it was literally before I even went there, this was about getting people out to vote. So Aretha and I went in the studio and cut it in New York. The rest was kind of history with it. I mean, it's, it's still very prevalent today. And with this election, this song, I, I, I wish this song were, was playing every single day on radio and everywhere else you could find it right now because to me, it is just, it's so important. You say that you don't matter What difference does it make No one listens to you So there's nothing here to stay You choose to stay contented To give your voice away To let another speak for you Don't you have nothing to say Declare yourself Declare your independence Give yourself A chance to make a difference It's your life And your rights And with this life It initially, that Divided We Fail coalition, which AARP began in 07, this really was used as an anthem yes. to the Affordable Health Care Act. You're right. What meaning did the song take on in 2012? I think it was just, I mean, the whole song really is about standing up for yourself using your voice. When you don't use your voice, you are letting someone else talk for you. And it's all about using your voice and standing up. And in the, in the bridge, when I have kind of a gospel choir singing the bridge, which is you've got to use your mind for thinking, you got to use your eyes for seeing, you got to use your heart for believing that there's a better way, a better way. You're the only one who can do it. You got the power, now you got to use it. You got the chance now, don't refuse it. You got to stop and find a way to declare yourself. Declare your independence. Give yourself the chance to make a difference. It's your life, it's your right, and with this life, if you do nothing else, stand up for yourself. Why do you think music has helped to empower social justice movements throughout history? 
my vessel has always been music and now a book. But I think the arts, whether it's film, television, a Broadway show, songs, books, can change the hearts and minds of people. I mean, and I'm saying it can move the needle because you can hear a song and go, wow, that hit an emotional connection in me that made me think. Or how many times have you ever walked out of a movie and said, God, I'll never feel the same way about blah, blah, blah again. And I think with music, even more so, that it transcends all, there's no borders, there's no walls. Music is a language, and I've spent my whole life trying to translate this. There's no more of an emotional power than the connection of music. So you don't have to see anything. All you got to do is hear, and you're able to be transcended a lot of times, and also your heart and mind changed. Tina, listening to you talk about this reminded me of a passage you wrote in Southern Discomfort that I will close with, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay, I like that. (laughs) From that moment, I put drumsticks to drum at the music store in Laurel, Mississippi. I had been obsessed with the drums and dreamed of one day playing professionally. I wanted to play like I heard Mahalia Jackson sing or Martin Luther King Jr. speak with power, with grace, with joy, and with a language all my own. Tina Clark, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Lois. It is always a huge gift and blessing to speak to you. Grammy Award-winning music producer, composer, and author, Tina Clark. A list of her social justice songs and more information about them is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Tina Clark's wonderful memoir, Southern Discomfort, has received Oprah's What to Read Next recommendation, following Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Esteemed company, indeed. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Alan Bat is a renowned photographer who goes by the name Batman. He has been photographing food for decades, published 30 books, and worked with over 700 chefs. His latest book is Tokes in Black, a celebration of black chefs which he says is the highlight of his career. He joins us now via Zoom. Batman, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you, Lois. I'm really happy to be here. And I got to tell you, you made me sound really important. You are very important and impressive. And this book is fantastic. During 
This year of our reckoning with racial injustice, we're hearing repeated calls for inclusivity and amplifying black voices. Where does Tokes in Black fit into the conversation? I started a little over two years ago when I had the idea and problems in the in this country were not quite as exaggerated as they are now. And it was just, I thought it was something really good to do because like some of the chefs in the book said, gee, I didn't know there were, where are all the black chefs? And I didn't know there were so many and that kind of thing. So when I first started, I, I asked the first 10 chefs to do two dishes because I didn't think I'd have enough to fill up a book. As it turns out, uh, the world has turned upside down and this book seems to be very pertinent and very timely. In, in the book, we have stories about when they were growing up, what they wanted to be when they grew up. Some wanted to be astronauts and musicians. And it just fits in because we're trying to even the color scheme in this country and not be one particular color. So uh, it's bringing a lot of attention to the black chefs who are absolutely wonderful. The book is not all, all uh, Southern cooking. In fact, it's very little, but we have a lot of soul in the book. And it's to show the diversity of these chefs. Alan, what determined the number of chefs you included? I got to 100, and I said, okay, that's enough, because if you put too many in one book, the book is just too heavy and too expensive. There were a lot of chefs that I would have liked to put in that I found out after, because everything was word of mouth. So I knew three chefs in New York, and I said, who do you know, and then who do they know, and who do they know? So it, it was just, because I've done so many books, 100 chefs, and it was also a photo of the dish, a story, and a recipe, which is usually two pages, and that was going to be 400 pages already. So I had to stop. Well, let's talk about that layout of the book. Two photos of the chef and their story appear on the left page. The food is on the right. Which came first, the portrait of the chef or the food depicted? It was the food. This is the first time I've ever done stories about the chefs and pictures of the chefs. It would have been out a year ago. And then I, I got close to, you know, getting the book finished. I said, you know what, we should, I have to do something different. There's a lot of cookbooks around. I've done a lot of cookbooks and I wanted this to be a little more interesting. So it took a while. It took like four months to get their stories. That was the hardest part. And so it made the whole difference. It's not just a cookbook now. It's something that I've been told will be around for a long time. And it's a part of the, the movement that's going on now. And I've heard that from several people. Tell us about the title. Toque is a chef hat in French. And most of the time, I, I seem to me, when a, a creative person, stuff just pops up in your head. And a lot of times in the middle of the night. And it just said, oh, Toke's in black. It just fit. I appreciated the story of Melba Wilson in Toke's in black. Her rise to success is quite impressive, having cooked at the famous Sylvia's restaurant in Harlem, her own restaurant backed by Robert De Niro. Melba Wilson credits her grandmother as a tremendous influence, saying her grandmother mixed love with every other ingredient that went into her down-home country cooking. Do you think that the chefs celebrated in your book are as intent on preserving heritage and tradition as they are in achieving recognition as sophisticated gourmet chefs? 
the history is not as important as their personal history. The history of the food is important, but they wanted it to diverse. And they've been working in a lot of really high-end restaurants. And they've, uh, most of them have gone to culinary school. I mean, they would like the recognition. Uh, that's the hardest thing to get because their food is exceptional. But I don't think it's putting the heritage in it. There are some that only cook food from their ancestors and stuff. Yeah, but I guess maybe a better way of putting it is honoring their families. Because that is a recurring theme throughout the book was a love of cooking learned with a parent or a grandparent. Mostly grandparents. That, that's the big common denominator in the book. It's just the nature of the, you know, the Southern history. I've read that a photo shoot of food is very labor intensive. Would you tell us how you set up and photograph food? Uh, I can, you might be disappointed when I tell you my story. <laughs> uh, I work with the chef. I don't work with stylists. So everything you see is real and, and it's from the chef's design. I, I do very rarely do I ever ask him to do differently because, because it's them. Well, what does the stylist use? I mean, I understand what fashion stylists do, but how do you dress up food? Well, you know what? If like if you have tomatoes, they'll probably have extra tomatoes and they'll cut them so that the slices are perfect, so that the fried stuff is perfect. Uh, ice cream, you know, they used to use all kinds of stuff. There was only one time in 20 years that I somebody used, I think it was Crisco or something. I'm also the fastest shooter in the business. First of all, because I'm not experienced, I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable, so I don't think about all the little details. Maybe you're supposed to. And with ice cream, I've always shot it before it melted, and then there's times where we let it melt a little. So it looks like you really want to eat it. <laughs> and they'll, they'll have a lot of vegetables or lettuce. They'll get ones with the leaves or, you know, curved just right, you know, uh, that kind of thing. But that's not your style. No, no. And I work in the restaurant. I don't do any studio shooting anymore. Although I never did. When I had a studio, I never did food. I was doing products and stuff. Uh, but now I go to the chefs and um, I can tell you a real quick story about this. I don't know whether you can ask me. Uh, with this uh, Tokes in Black, I did 77 chefs in 46 cities in 50 days. That was pretty intensive. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was wonderful. And because I have no equipment, I just had a carry-on bag. I had a, a backpack with my camera equipment. And then I had a carry-on bag with my clothes for seven days. So I carried that all in a car, uh, carry-on bag, and that's, that's the way I traveled. And it was good. And it was exciting. And it was crazy. <laughs> It, it sounds like it, but what what fun. Did you get to eat the food you photographed? Of course. Oh, I envy that. Well, you know what? I don't know if I appreciate it as much as you would. So next time you should come with me. Oh, that would be fun. Well, I have had the pleasure of dining more than once at Red Rooster, the restaurant in Harlem owned by the famous chef Marcus Samuelson, charismatic guy, just marvelous. And he wrote the foreword to Tokes in Black. Yes, he did. And he sent me a wonderful email thanking me for doing this book and giving me Black Chefs a platform to work off. Alan, what did you learn from your involvement in this project? I learned how important the slaves were 
in forming the American cuisine with all the things, all the, the, the food that they brought from Africa that, you know, people today think it, you know, grows upstate New York, uh, which it does now. And I didn't realize how important it was to the culture of American cuisine. Food photographer Alan Batt. His latest book is Tokes in Black, a celebration of black chefs. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we have two special guests. Chef and cookbook author Hugh Atchison has a new book called How to Cook. He wrote it with his teenage daughters in mind. We'll also hear from Georgia's sweetheart, Jamie Barton, the opera superstar who does not behave like a diva. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. And do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.